Tonight's scripture reading is Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 30. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit herself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The word of the Lord. Well, it's a sweet thing for me to be back here at All Souls after quite a while away and to see what the Lord is doing here, just to worship with you. Uh, those of you who don't know the uh, beginnings of All Souls, uh, it might be helpful to you as you now celebrate your 10th year to know that it was about 12 years ago that a few of us at Cedar Springs began to think about the downtown area because we were seeing more and more uh, action down around Market Square and on Gay Street as buildings were bought up and renovated. And uh, a lot of people, not just very young people, uh, began talking about moving back into the city. And so a couple of us came down and began uh, just walking around, meeting people, talking to them. And, of course, I had good friends in ministry in some of the churches down here in town uh, this explosion of new churches had not yet begun. And so the churches downtown were pretty much the uh, old established churches and uh, some wonderfully effective ministries, but uh, they all seemed to be two suburban people. They were simply suburban churches meeting downtown. And so we thought, uh, talking to them, there really ought to be a church down here specifically for the city ready to welcome people as they're moving into the city. And we began to pray about it, to plan it, to look for the right place, to think about what that church really should look like. Of course, uh, believe me, if you know me, you know I'm not one of these for sitting down and doing mission statements and vision statements. I just start getting sleepy when people talk about that because the church has been given its mission statement. 
we've been told that we are to make disciples of all nations and that we're to do it as we go by teaching all that the Lord has taught us, teaching people to obey all that the Lord has commanded and to baptize them into the community of faith. And so we can't much improve on that. But having said that, we did realize that there were certain values, there, was, there needed to be a certain ethos, worship itself, music is a language. And so we thought, what should that look like? Uh, Doug and I had been good friends already for about 12 years. Since I first came to Knoxville, he'd preceded me by a year or two. He was planting a church, and I was, as a young man way back then, uh, becoming pastor of a church that was getting ready to celebrate its bicentennial. And so we had unique sympathies for one another, coming from two very different positions. And yet it bound our hearts together, and God, as you know, so greatly owned Doug's ministry during his years at Fellowship, had a tremendous impact on this city and on uh, together doing men's groups, seeking to get men, sorry, but we were ministering to men. There were lots of women already meeting together, but not many men, and so we began to work on men's groups. You know the story. I won't repeat it. But Doug knew one thing. He'd been a pastor. He'd seen explosive growth. He'd pastored the big church, and he was done pastoring. Wasn't sure what God had for him. He was back in school working on his doctorate. He wanted to write. He wanted to teach. But he would tell me, there's one thing I know. This I know. I'm never going to pastor another church. But uh, I didn't know how I was going to do both Cedar Springs, which was more demanding than I was gifted for. And here, the reason that you meet at night is because uh, I was at Cedar Springs in the morning, and we started over at the new convention center at night. And so I'd come over, and the team came over, and I would preach at night. But Doug began coming. And as we would meet together during the week, he began to ask more and more questions. And even back during the planning phase, he began to engage. And he'd say, no, I don't want to be in any leadership position, but I would love just to be a part of this and help you think through it. And then as we got ready to go, he said, well, you know, I wouldn't mind leading worship, uh, but I don't want to preach. And, and it, all of that is to say the first night after a couple years of planning, all of the excitement, I stood up to preach, which is the great love of my life. It's what the Lord, during this phase of life, has called me to do. And always to turn and face God's people has been a joy. And so on our first, we'd, we'd sung, we'd worshipped, and now I walked up and turned around to preach God's word. And I don't hear when people, I've got some friends who it just seems God's always talking to them. I'm jealous. i he, he's always talking to me through his word and through you and through circumstances, but uh, I don't hear audible voices. But it was about as close as I've ever had that night, just as I turned to speak. It was like the wind went out of my sails, and God said, you've done what I wanted you to do. You're done. And I had to go on and preach while I'm horribly distracted, went home just sad because I'd really put my heart in this. And yet it became apparent over the next weeks as Doug, no, I don't want to, but I will lead. Yeah, I'll lead communion. Uh, then one night I just said, Doug, I just, I can't preach. Would you just preach? Okay, I'll do it this once. <laughs> and Doug stood and preached. And I can't tell you I, what a joy it was as I sat there and watched him fall in love with preaching God's word again. You just saw it because God made him to do it. And I realized in that moment, 
I didn't dare tell him yet because I was afraid he'd run out the door and wouldn't stop. But I realized that all of that uh, on the part uh, of those of us who'd kind of gotten things going was uh, partly to get Doug off the bench back in the game and uh, to see the way that the, God, that the Lord has owned his ministry here is to me a tremendous joy. But why in the world did I pick Romans 8? Doug told me that he was in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, and I love the Sermon on the Mount. The reason is this. I've become increasingly convinced that one of the most destructive things to the church is not merely unbelief or preaching what is not true. Uh, Another way that the enemy gets us is by getting us to become monomaniacal about just one thing, one focus, one area where we, where God has perhaps really ministered to our hearts and shown us things, and yet that suddenly begins to fill our horizon, and that becomes everything. I've seen it in my own unique setting, where so many of the best and brightest young pastors, some of them that uh, trained with me, have become in recent years part of what's known as the grace movement, which was needed at first. And of course, Tim Keller is a great representative of that. The, the preaching against any form of legalism, any thought that we can perform our way into God's grace. But the lesson overlearned by so many young people has been this, and some not so young people, is the idea that the entire message of the church can be boiled down to the message of justification as though justification can bear the entire weight of salvation when it's really one, a glorious, yes, but just one part of what God has done. As uh, David Paulison has so wisely written, the cross is bigger than forgiveness of sins. The gospel is bigger than the cross. And what might sound as heresy to some Christians, but is absolutely true, the word of God is bigger than the gospel. The gospel is glorious, central, necessary. And yet, God is our triune God. Most really sweet, earnest Christians that I know tend to pray to Jesus. Every time I'm with them, they're, oh, Jesus, dear Jesus, please. And of course, that's sweet. And at every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But the reality is, There is only one prayer to Jesus in all of the Bible, and it's at the very end, the cry, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord. Jesus said, I've come so that you may know the Father. When you pray, pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We pray to the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. We worship a triune God. So, what does that have to do with anything? I, I thought that you have focused rightly, and it was the vision from the start to focus on the city, on being a light to the city, salt and light, to pray that beautiful prayer that was uh, stated at the very beginning of this service, the famous words of Jeremiah that we are to pray for the peace of the city, to know that in its welfare is our welfare. And we might turn that and say, in our welfare, God's people within the city is the welfare of the city. And and you've sought to do that, and I have rejoiced hearing of it and seeing the effects of what you've done. I would simply challenge you on your 10th anniversary 
as you look around, as you are, as I heard, in a period of discernment, to, to make it a period of discernment not only for those new leaders that God is raising up, but to ask, sorry, I'll, I'll walk around a little so that I can see those of you hidden behind the post. You may wish I didn't, but I want to be sure I see you. Uh, to make it a period of discernment as well as to whether your vision is as spacious as the vision that God has given his church. And I would remind you of the vision of Scripture that we have sung so beautifully tonight. Let me thank you for putting together songs that give us that sweeping view of redemption. It's hard to find such songs today among the new songs. Part of the grace movement has been that almost all the really beautiful songs are cross songs. They're all about redemption. We want beautiful songs about that, but we need songs about creation, about fall, about redemption, about walking with Christ, about life in the spirit. Songs that we used to, when I was a boy, call songs of aspiration, not (laughs) that kind of aspirating, but (laughs) aspiring to more, longing to be more because of all that God has called us to be. And songs that point us toward the future, toward our destiny in Christ, what it is that he's prepared for us. We live in one of the most beautiful parts of the country. Now, there are many beautiful parts of the country. I was reminded of that the past few days. I played hooky uh, the last several days and with a fishing buddy of mine went over to uh, Charleston, South Carolina. And Thursday and Friday, we were polled around in the estuaries and we absolutely made Charleston a hell for redfish. I can only (laughs) tell you that, but it was heaven for us. It was hopefully what awaits us. Uh, and, and the beauty of that place, as, as we'd get out there as this, before the sun rose while it was still cold and watch the sun come up over those marshes and see the world come alive and to be able to say, this is my Father's world. God created this beauty. If it is this beautiful now, what will it be in the day of the Lord? And so, again, what does that have to do with vision? Just this. You are, we are, uniquely the city of the Appalachians. Asheville really isn't. My people are from over Asheville way, and I love Asheville, but uh, it's a different bird. This is the Appalachian city. It's neither north nor south. It is its own flavor. It's not like Memphis, nor like Nashville, nor like Chattanooga. It is a city uniquely, historically filled with people coming, yes, from around the world, but people who have within them that Appalachian DNA, that kind of, you can come to the top of my ridge and call down and say hi, hi, but don't come down in my cove unless you're invited. I might have a still down here. There's historical reason for it. But not only would I challenge you to continue to have this vision of the city, but have a vision of this region and realize, and this comes to the point of our text, that when Paul came to this first great summarizing passage of Romans, having taken us from 
the, the problem at the beginning. You know, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone that believes. He then immediately turns around and instead of describing the gospel, describes the problem. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the wickedness and ungodliness of people because of our rebellion against him. And then he slowly begins to build the case. He shows that the problem is not just the immoral of the world. The problem is the moral of the world. And not just the moral of the world, it's the religious of the world. It is all of us that we cannot save ourselves, but that God has done for us what we could not do. And as he builds this layer by layer, chapter by chapter, he comes in Romans 8 to this great first summary of the epistle and says that there is therefore now, not just in the future, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he calls us not to live with our minds still set on the old ways, the old things, the flesh, but to have our minds set on the spirit. And yet, what does he mean by that? Does he mean that it's not right to enjoy fishing or golf or or hiking in the Smokies or art or music unless it's specifically Christian? That what we should always be thinking about is having our minds set on Bible studies and theology? And No. You can... You can go to church and to Bible study for all the wrong reasons. I remember in the Navy in those wild days, far from the Lord, pulling into port one time, and a couple of the wildest guys I knew, it was Sunday morning, and they were kind of spiffing up, and I said, what are you doing? They said, we're going to church. Going to church? Women. Women. I mean, you can go to church or Bible study for lots of reasons. And you can talk theology out of pride and arrogance and desire to win an argument and show how smart you are or confirm your own views. And you can talk about sex, drugs, and rock and roll in a way that glorifies God and brings clarity. What he's talking about is the motive for why we're living, where we're living, what we are living at the moment. And then in the midst of all this talk about life in the spirit, he says, I don't consider the sufferings of this present time, that's where our text began, something that should just hold us back and be a source of agony and pain. Why? Because this present suffering is working glory. It's working God's will. It's working our future. And then he speaks to us of three groanings. And it's simply these groanings that I would now draw your attention to and speak a moment about each, and then you're done listening to me. I have to confess, I looked around here and saw so, so many young people who'd grown up under my ministry, I thought, oh, the wind must have gone out of their sails when they learned that uh, I was going to be speaking. And I, they thought they'd escaped me by coming down here. You can never get away from me. You can't do it. The first groaning is quite amazing. He says in verse 22 of chapter 8 that the creation is groaning like a woman in labor, longing for the redemption of the people of God. Why? Why would he speak that way? Poets capture it. Poets speak of the mournful murmur of the waves, the sign of the wind, the bloody tooth and claw of life. We see this 
creation in all of its beauty, nonetheless groaning. If you, over the years, followed the desecration of the, the highest peaks in the Smokies, we used to go up and, and go from one biological uh, sort of, or, or um, you, you, you were, it was like driving up through the United States into Canada. You were moving from one region to another. And up until at the top, you were up in the Canadian biosphere. And there were those majestic Douglas firs. And now you look at what the introduction of a, uh, an alien aphid and, even more, the pollution coming down out of the Midwest and being caught by the Smokies. And you stand up there and look at what was once so majestic and beautiful, now just the vertebral dead branches ready to collapse of fields of dead firs. The creation is, is groaning because, Paul writes, it has been subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of our rebellion against God. And we who were out of all creation, that part made in God's image, after God's likeness, for intimate friendship with him, and in order to steward this creation, to care for it, and to offer it back to him, our great God and King, instead have plundered it and used it and abused it. And I'm so grieved when I hear Christians talk about this world, it doesn't matter, it's, it's just one day going to all pass away, and our home is not here, it's in heaven. Do you ever hear people say that? My home is in heaven, it's not here. I was taught that as a child, and honestly, it, it didn't thrill me. Uh, I, I had this awful sense that church was, or that heaven was going to be kind of like Wednesday nights at our fundamentalist church, <laughs> where everybody prayed long prayers while I just prayed, oh Lord, make them stop. Please, I want to go home. And the idea, now, I did prefer it to the alternative because the descriptions of hell were quite graphic and went well beyond anything that the Bible teaches. But nonetheless, <laughs> I'd say, okay, that instead of that. But I had this idea, you know, it was the classic cartoon version. Those of you who are old enough to remember Gary Larson and his profoundly theological far side cartoons. Uh, one of my favorites showed a split screen. There were two escalators, one going up and one going down. Those going up are being met by St. Peter at the top, and he's saying, welcome to heaven, here's your harp. And those going down are being met by Satan, who says, welcome to hell, here's your accordion. And that was, you know, kind of my cartoon view that somehow, I guess, you'd be floating on clouds and playing harps and do I have to wear one of those goofy-looking robes? And, you know, it was just a cartoon version. And, of course, I knew you'll be restored to those you've loved. And, and you'll be with the Lord, which I, I knew even as a child I should look forward to. But, honestly, I, I wasn't quite sure what the Lord and I would do. So, you know, I, I would much rather have been with my little buddies out playing in the backyard. And it was so wonderful. Years and years later, when after years of running, the Lord began to draw me back to himself, and I began to open his word and read it with new eyes, and I saw that our destiny is not heaven. 
Heaven is simply described when heaven is spoken of alone. It's the throne room of God. It's the place where those who've gone before us have gone to await what's coming. And the only one who has fully realized and tasted what's coming is our Lord himself, who is the only one who's been resurrected and received back his body as the first fruit of the resurrection and who stands in the presence of the Father as a a promise to us that we too one day will be like him. In the presence of the living God, there stands a human being, fully human, fully divine. And it's in him that we look toward the future. Even those poor people like Lazarus who were raised from the dead were not resurrected. They'd gone through death and they had to go through it again. I'm sure when Lazarus was called forth, he said, thanks a lot. You know, I got to do this again. The truth is, even Paul in speaking in 1 Corinthians 15 of what's coming said, That, of course, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He said that uh, not there in that text. But uh, he speaks of not wanting to be naked, not wanting to be. He knows that to be there, he'll be without his earthly tent, but he doesn't want to be unclothed. What's he talking about? It was Greek philosophy that taught that our salvation was to be found in getting rid of this wicked body and getting free of this wicked material earth and going in spirit form to be with the immortals, and with the logoi, the, the, with truth and goodness and beauty and the true forms of which we experience only types and shadows here. And that's why when at Mars Hill, when Paul stood up and spoke to the philosophers and said, I saw you had a, an unknown God here, I've come to tell you about him. And they say, okay, and they're listening with interest. The moment he spoke of the resurrection of the dead, most of them laughed, turned around and left. Because for them, salvation had nothing to do with getting your body back or being in a reconstituted cosmos. And so heaven, even in Revelation 6, where we hear from the martyrs, they're not going, isn't heaven groovy? Isn't it great? They're crying out from beneath the throne, how long until you finish this thing? They're not satisfied. They're free from pain and sorrow. But in spirit form, we can know nothing of pleasure and beauty, and joy for which we were created. So heaven is an intermediate state for the people of God. And all these books, I don't want to take too long, but you know these books that keep being produced of people who say they've died and gone to heaven and come back and they've got this description of it. I'm sorry if you're having a Bible study right now and reveling in one of those. (laughs) But let me just tell you that I think it's absolute What's a word I can use at all souls? Balderdash. It's, I mean, the reality is people of all different religions have all kinds of experiences when they have near-death experiences. I I saw a really cute cartoon when a number of these books had come out. Uh, There was a little cartoon that had a dog doing a book reading at, uh, we'll say, Barnes & Noble. And he's got all his little dogs around him sitting in chairs like this. And he's sitting reading the the plaque said, uh, uh, Dogs Do Go to Heaven by Fido. And it had a a picture of a fire hydrant on a cloud. And and he's, he's reading to them and saying, I can't remember exactly what Jesus looked like, but I can give you a very accurate description of the sandwich he was eating. You know, a dog goes to heaven. 
the reality is the views that we have of heaven are few. How Randy Alcorn, bless his heart, got a book that thick on heaven when the Bible says so little is just beyond me. But what it does describe is not what these people describe. It describes worship, awe, wonder, fear, people falling before the presence of the God of glory and crying out and singing the song to the Lamb. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed men to God from every tribe and every tongue and every... You know the songs. But it's worship. It's glory. It's not some big amusement park. And they are waiting. Waiting for what? For the new heavens and the new earth. The picture with which the Bible opens is in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Whenever the Bible doesn't use earth alone or heaven alone, but uses them together, it means the cosmos. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the sky and the land, the cosmos. The Bible ends with a picture, then I saw the new heaven and the new earth, namely the new cosmos. And the city of God coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. And God said, I will make my home with humanity. The vision that we have is of the day that is coming when God makes all things new. And so first, Paul says that in some way incomprehensible to us, the creation itself, this cosmos, this universe, the stars, the sun, the galaxies beyond our, even the reach of Hubble are all together singing the praises of God and groaning with longing for that day when at last God makes all things new. And for that reason, you and I should be at the forefront of creation care and ecology and involvement in care of this planet when people say, but it's all going to pass away. So's your body, but you don't think a man's a fool for being a doctor or a woman a fool for caring for people who are broken. We say that's a glorious thing to do. Why? Because God made those bodies. God made this cosmos and called it good. And I pray that somewhere in your theological view of what you are to be for this city will also involve the world around of which this city is the gathering point. The glory. There's a second groaning, verse 23. I'll be really fast now, I promise. Verse, it's almost my bedtime. That's the good thing about having an old man preach. I'm getting tired. <laughs> verse 23. It's not just the creation that's groaning, but it then says, and we ourselves are groaning. Groaning for the redemption of what? Not our souls. He said we are groaning for the redemption of our bodies. We are longing for that day when God makes all things new, wipes away our tears, raises us up from the dead, and gives us glorified bodies like that of our Lord. I used to, when I was young, and Tom Selleck was young, say, you know, in that day, I want to look like Tom Selleck. Until somebody came up to me from the church and said, we used to have pastors who wanted to be like Jesus. Now we've got one or so I stop. But the point is, we don't know what it'll be. At, at least I want my hair back. I don't care about the mustache. But we are looking forward to a day 
when he makes all things new, when the brokenness caused by sin, the diseases that we've passed down to one another, an environment that we have polluted, when at last everything that we've loved, all of the glorious beauty of the Smokies in autumn as the leaves turn colors and the streams run clear with trout, please, Lord. And, and, and our hearts are stirred. Something deep within us is stirred and ought to be stirred because the heavens are telling the glory of God. The skies above proclaim his handiwork day to day, pours forth speech night to night, declares knowledge. This glorious universe in all of its brokenness, with all of its groaning, is always telling us of the wonder of our great God and King and giving us at least shadows and pictures of what's coming, that the best is yet to be on on your most beautiful day this autumn. If you get up to the Smokies or are driving up on Cherahala Parkway, just realize you're getting previews of coming attractions. But what we will see in that day is so far beyond what we could know. And uh, my great vision now, my longing for what's coming of my true home is of of running a glorified hand through an ice-cold glorified stream and looking at the the beauty and glory of, of the world, colors beyond the spectrum that I could now even see, hearing the notes of birds and of, of music and of song beyond anything that I could yet conceive, the thrill of majestic music, just a picture of what's coming. And the church should think of that and speak of it and sing of it and encourage each other with that and celebrate it by being about the care of this world that is a picture of what God made when he made it. He called it good. When he made us, he called us good. We've broken it. Christ has fixed it. And we should, with creation, be groaning. And with those who've gone before us like the martyrs, groaning for the day when at last God makes all things new. Finally, wonder of wonders, verse 26, we're told that the Spirit of God is groaning. I almost said the Spirit of God himself. And that's how our Bible's always translated into English. But our sister was quite correct in correcting that translation. In the Greek of the New Testament, the word for spirit is actually neuter, pneuma, from which we get all air-related words, pneumatic, pneumonia, uh, pneumothorax, uh, because spirit, wind, breath are all the same word. But in it's, in the New Testament, it's always working with the Hebrew concept. And in the Hebrew, the word is ruach, which is feminine. So the word for God's spirit in the Bible is feminine. And it's quite theologically correct, though people uh, of traditional caste will think you're being radical and unbiblical because of our translations. But the spirit, we can say the spirit herself, groans. As we seek to pray and don't know how to pray or what to pray, the construction there in the Greek is, is very odd. It literally says, Paul literally says, we don't know the what to pray. In other words, we don't know what to pray, we don't know how to pray, but we just know the need that we have for you, Lord. And, and we're groaning, and he says, the Spirit of God now groans with us, and in his groanings takes our broken confused longings and prayers and turns them 
and to prayers that are according to the will of God, prayers of power, prayers of expectation, prayers that move heaven and earth toward that moment when at last God makes all things new. What is your hope? What do you look forward to? I'm probably the oldest guy in the room, so it's probably going to be closer for me and becomes more real. But even for those of you who are youngest, you know that for any of us, it could be a moment from now on the way home. I'm not saying that to get ready to give an invitation, believe me. I'm just saying, do you and I live, realize that we are living and therefore consciously live on the cusp of eternity and know that it is not disembodied spirits in an immaterial heaven, but it is rather resurrected in flesh souls or in soul bodies, fully human people made in God's image for his glory, walking the earth as our first parents are depicted, walking the earth in the opening second chapter of Genesis uh, and third chapter of Genesis with God. It's that for which we're made. It's that that is our destiny. And it's that for which we should learn to long and groan. And in our labors, to lead the way in caring for people and places and things that God has made and treasure them as sacred incarnational pictures of his beauty, his artistry, his power, and of what awaits us. Do you remember that beautiful picture in the Gospels where there was a blind man who came to Jesus to be healed? And Jesus touched him once. And he said, I see people, but they they look like trees walking. And Jesus touched him again. And he said, now I can see. The great Puritan scholar John Owen wrote of that text, the first touch is grace. The second touch is grace is glory. And no matter how marvelous has been your experience of God's grace thus far in your life, you and I wait for the second touch. And that will be joy unspeakable and full of glory. God bless you as you enter your second decade. May God bless you and keep you. 